So Psalm 49, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark sayings on the heart. Why should I fear in the days of evil when iniquity at my hills surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit." We'll stop there for the moment. Hear this, all peoples. There's a cry out from God through the sons of Korah to all people, all inhabitants of the world, uh, high and low, rich and poor together. It's, you know, Proverbs uh, talks about the rich and the poor and, uh, and the way life works for people. Uh, the Proverbs give us uh, moral wisdom. And there's no wisdom from God that doesn't involve moral wisdom. It's not about just the wisdom to fix something that you want fixed a certain way. It's the wisdom of moral truth and rightness. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. And you go, well, that's kind of simplistic, isn't it? Well, people don't know that. So often men honor men and women honor others based on false values, a world of false values. And it is amazing as we're reading in Isaiah on Wednesday nights and studying it, God speaks to the nations surrounding Israel through the prophets of Israel. He is not just speaking to Israel. And he speaks to many of them in the surrounding nations in real time as it's happening, things that are going on then, and he gives them prophecy and futuristic message as well. <clears throat> now, some will argue, well, how many people actually heard all this stuff? How many people actually heard about this guy Isaiah and all the things he said? And the answer is plenty. <laughs> plenty of people in the nations around. Do you recall, and if, you ha- if you're unfamiliar, uh, it's, it'll be great when you read it, but the invading armies like the Assyrians would come and they knew about the God of Israel. And they said, they'd even suggest, your God sent us to judge you, just like your Bible says that he was going to. They would say things. They would talk smack to him. But they would also quote from their Bible or from the Jewish Bible or allude to it at least and, and, and claim that they were coming in a fulfillment of prophecy, which was true sometimes, but they also overextended in pride themselves, these nations around them. Are you with me? Okay, and then, of course, there's Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the dream that, if you look at the early part of Daniel, it's a big part of it is Nebuchadnezzar receiving uh, uh, dreams from God. And in the end of it all, in chapter 4, he actually comes to some kind of faith in God. We don't know for sure his total faith, but he declared the glory of the God of Israel, the one true living God. And by the way, Daniel's written partially in Aramaic, because probably because Nebuchadnezzar is quoting, he's, it's his testimony. One guy said, it's like the first uh, track that's been made 
is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony sharing with the world. But then after Nebuchadnezzar comes a guy named Darius, or Darius, depending on how you pronounce it, who saw God. He was weak as a leader of the Medes and the Persians, and yet he saw God deliver Daniel from the lion's den. And then after him comes a guy named Cyrus, who was prophesied his name and his role 150 years by Isaiah before he was born, and it was shown to him when he came on the scene, this is you, your name here, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to serve God by releasing his people. And he said, you bet I will. See, we walk by faith, but it is not blind faith. I've heard people say, you know, everyone else has evidence, we just have our faith. That is not true. Atheists do not have strong evidence, and they have faith. People who are ambivalent have no sense of things but just their own self, have faith in themselves. Everyone has faith. It's where do you apply it? Our faith is evidence-based. Now, when I came to Jesus, and probably when some of you came to Jesus, you maybe didn't have a list of evidence given to you. I, I get that. I, there was evidence even being presented to me as I was listening to the Bible study, uh, uh, Chuck Smith, uh, last day's prophecy study. Some of that prophecy, the way he thought it was going to come true, did not come true the way he thought. That's okay. I wasn't moved by the prophecy. I was moved by the Holy Spirit. I was moved because God was working in my heart. God can use the list of things that people share with you. The reason we share things is we engage people and God will use it. But it's usually after you become a Christian that you begin to realize how much evidence there is for Christianity. In most people's case. I had no idea how conclusive the Bible was, how fulfilling it was, how much, it, how much it said about so many things that were impossible. I had no idea about a million things that now are just helpful to my faith evidence. So <clears throat> in verses 3 through 5, he, well, first of all, he says, um, listen up, y'all. <laughs> Anyone who will, God is drawing people through this psalm. And he says in verses 3 through 5, with my music, my poetry, my proverbs, I'll tell you deep, secret things. Dark things didn't mean the way we use the word, oh, it was a dark movie. It's deep, secret things from God that weren't known but were going to be revealed. And why should I fear in the days of evil when I'm surrounded by iniquity, whether others or my own? Well, that's a good question. If you're going to fear men when you're surrounded by people around you, who hate you, that sounds like a good time to start. <laughs> if you're going to be afraid of men, now would be a good time to start. But on the hills of what we were here, heard last week about Jehoshaphat and how the Lord fought the battle for them, they didn't have to fight the battle. When you live in the fear of God, when you live in the fear of God, that reduces your fear of other things. You can tell if you are living in the fear of God by how much you are fearing other things. We all have a challenge with those fears. We're not made or broke by having a perfect attitude all the time. But if you fear God in a holy, healthy way, your other fears are reduced. This is the testimony of the faithful. Proverbs 14.26 says, 
In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. Do you like that? Do you need a place of refuge? If you don't feel like you do right now, would you check back with me if I'm still here in five years? I think I'll be around. Uh, Because you're going to need a place of refuge. And that's true for everyone through all generations. We need a place of refuge. In the fear of the Lord, there's confidence. You see, other fears reduce. Like, if you don't understand that, I don't know that I, I don't want to take a lot of time and think that I can explain it fully to you. That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes our job is to point each other to seek the Lord for the answer about how it works. If you know something's supposed to work, one of the things that you and I need to do is not just, not just go to other people, tell me how it works. And that's okay to do. But it's really important to go to the Lord. This is part of your relationship with him. You're growing, my growing in Jesus. Lord, how does this work in my life? That gives you a place to talk to him about. And uh, if, you, if you resist that, and you only want to pray, bless this, bless that, bless that, you're not really having a relationship with God, and he created you for a relationship, not for him to give you lists to do and for you to give him lists to do. Neither way is the ultimate. It's not lists. Here, take care of this. Okay, well, you take care of this. Well, I take care of that. If I take care of this, then you'll take care of that. <laughs> That's not relationship with God. But some people live that way, think that, and they're also frustrated in their relationship with God. When they talk about, hear about loving the Lord and experiencing him, it just goes right past because their relationship is based on works and getting what they want from God. There's more to it. The fear of the Lord and gain confidence. Our challenges are the same as those who've gone before us, even if they had surrounding enemies and we don't, whatever, however you look at it. As we talked about a while back in 1 Peter 1.13, as he spoke to the scattered believers in Christ around the world, he said, therefore, gird up the loins, tighten up your belt, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, clear thinking, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now he addresses those who do not trust the Lord. And keep in mind, he's calling out to the nations through this prophet. This is a prophet speaking. And we'll keep reading. <clears throat> We've read about the, 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 the redemption of the soul that can't happen through money. He's going to develop this more. Pardon me. <coughs> that was the reason I probably should have used the other microphone. For he sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, they call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He's like the beast that perishes. This is the way of those who are foolish in their posterity, who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they're laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, far from their dwelling. Is this making you happy? But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of the house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself, 
and men will praise you, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers, they shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. <clears throat> the prophet here, the psalmist, is not decrying the, that having wealth is evil of itself at all. Abraham was a rich man, King David was a rich man, etc. It's not about whether you should or can be rich, it's what you do with your life. You know, money can't buy me love. And then they wrote another song that says, but give me money. The Beatles were confused. Okay. <laughs> money can't buy you love or heal an illness or make you truly happy. And it definitely can't ransom a person from God's judgment, can it? What does trusting in money make a person? It makes them a fool. Trusting in money will make you a fool. And historically, people seek to buy redemption even today I'll give money to the church, I'll give money to whatever it is, and then you pray for me. And we're going to see that in Psalm 50 as well. But the redemption is costly. How costly is the redemption of a soul? It costs God the life of his son. The only thing that, the only thing that costs God, God could, get, could make billions of dollars or billions of planets or billions of red Ferraris. But God gave himself in Jesus Christ, the only thing that cost him. That's the value, true value. And it says, for he sees, like Solomon saw. Solomon, in, in Ecclesiastes, we're starting it on Tuesdays at our noon study, he saw and felt the emptiness of valuing riches over, over poor, poverty because he's the one who also said, man, I looked and I went, what's the value of being rich? I go to the same grave as the poor men. He goes, and that here we learn that men think they can put their name on property for posterity that will live on and on. And some people do scheme ways to accomplish their goals so that they can live on in the minds of others or so that they can have security in their future. And again, it's not, we're not talking about it's evil to prepare or be faithful with finances or any of that. That's not the point. The point is people who think they're an end unto themselves and they don't need God. Are you there? That's what's being talked about here. People who don't need God and think that their wealth and their self-sustaining efforts are enough for them. And um, sometimes they, you know, find ways to, uh, even legally, there was a lawyer in France in the, like, 1970s or 80s, sometime back there. He bought a townhouse from a lady who was 90 years old she was paying rent on it, and then in France they have this way that at some point, it's like a mortgage, let's just leave it that. It's like she had this little mortgage on this place, and it was going to get paid off. But he goes, she's 90 years old, I'll offer to pay her mortgage till she dies, just whatever's left, and then I will own the house when she dies. He was 47. I think he worked for a law firm, Dewey, Cheatham, and Howell. Um but I'm not sure of that because uh, it was in French. Uh, but but uh, he goes, no, it's a good deal. I'll, I'll pay the rest of your mortgage for as long as you live, and then it's mine. She said, sure, Sonny. And he gets it cheap in a few years. How long is she going to live? Well, that's the problem. She didn't die. She didn't die, and she actually lived, and it's a story that's told and known, and you can look it up. 
uh, there's some question as whether she lied about her age. <laughs> it was less than 90, but she lived, according to be one of the oldest people in the world, she lived to be 121. He died at 77, never set foot in the house. Yeah. So the proverb's true. A lawyer who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beast that perishes. Uh, the best view of this, of what he's talking about, is uh, uh, in this verse about people who think they can redeem in their own way. Uh, in 16 through 20, uh, and this whole idea of listen up, you rich and poor, high and low, no matter who you are, the great equalizer is death. The great equalizer. And shows the true value of life because our hope is in eternal life. And to do our best here, when you do your best for God, living for the future, for your hope in heaven, it makes your life the best on earth. You also get this thrown in. Because everything here that's a blessing, you enjoy more. And you don't have to own stuff to enjoy stuff. You know, sometimes it's better not to own something and just go use it and rent it and pay a little more money for it and not have the headache of it. You know, just you have to figure those things out yourself. But vividly, this is revealed to us, this issue of the rich who thinks he's got it all versus the poor in Luke chapter 16, which is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies because, and he is in rebellion to God, and it's not because he's rich, but Lazarus... Is the dogs are licking his sores. He can't get up. He's probably lame in his legs, and he's uh, starving at the at the rich man's gate, and and he dies, and the rich man dies, and they both go to the place of waiting. One of them is in hell. The rich man is there, and and across the great chasm is Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, being comforted by by Abraham. And you know the story. If you don't know it, it's Luke 16, but I'm not going to go through the whole story. The rich man is pleading not only for drink from, from the fingertip of Lazarus to come and just dip his finger and give him one taste of water, but he says, well, if there's a great gulf fixed, Abraham says, you can't come here, we can't go there. Well, then send Lazarus to my brothers. I have five brothers who are just like me. See, he did love his brothers. All of a sudden, his, he, who knows how much he loved him when he was living. But all of a sudden, he realizes that his destiny, his brothers are just like him. And, and Abraham says, no, they have, they have the law and the prophets. Let them listen. He goes, no, but if somebody went from the dead. He go, and Abraham says, even if someone went from the dead, they won't believe. There are some people that you can prove, in a sense, through evidence it still has to be faith but jesus rose from the dead there's people that will reject that and that's a sad truth he wants to redeem his brothers but his influence is over you and i have influence right now and you may say i don't have any influence but if you walk the journey that the scriptures are teaching you god will give you people to influence not people to control. We don't have to work hard at it here because it's in our pattern and practice. We have many flaws and faults here (laughs) because I'm here, so, and then I add a few of you with me. (laughs) There's going to be a few flaws and faults here. But 
So I was going to say we work hard. I'll just say it that way. We work hard that we're not here to control your life. Really important that your pastor, pastors, leaders don't try to manipulate or control you. That's those of you reading the Jesus style. Everything he said that's true was true before Gail Irwin was ever born. <laughs> it's been true since God exists. That we're not here to control you and dominate your life. We're here to help you. You know, when the Bible tells you to listen to your leaders, that you should listen to your leaders, it's assuming leaders who love you and care about you and are telling you the truth. And it's a two-way street. I'm not to try to control you and dominate your life. I get to tell you that freely because you know what? I don't try to do that. I won't try to do that. And if you catch me on it or somebody does, I'll repent. I already know that because I've been through that enough. I trust the Lord in my life to keep me there. But I also am willing to be challenged to stay there. Are you with me? You have a responsibility too. (laughs) Yeah, that pastor better make sure he doesn't try to tell me what to do and control my life. No. If God's speaking to you through leadership and through the church structure and you're not listening, you're in rebellion to God. Let's move on because that felt really great. <laughs> just leave it right there. No, I mean, I'm just telling you the truth. That's, uh, it, you and me both. Psalm 50. <clears throat> Not of, uh, this is, did I say Asaph before? I meant Korah. Now this is Asaph. No, I said Korah, didn't I? Okay, so now we're with Asaph. David's chief musician, and then his descendants. <clears throat> so this is thought to be the first in a series of, of Asaph's messages. And, and we don't think it's just one guy named Asaph, but it can be his, the generations that follow him and his co-laborers. <clears throat> the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around. (coughs) Excuse me. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Now what he's going to do in the next section is he's going to be speaking prophetically God's word to the people. This is going to be God speaking, and he's setting the stage here. God is speaking to his covenant people now, not to all the world, but to his covenant people, even his saints, which means his true believers, those who've made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And he calls earth to remembrance. It's kind of like he is reminiscent in what he's going to share with, with this tempestuous and this dark and this heaviness and this fire and this etc. It's reminiscent of Mount Sinai that the smoke and the fire and the earthquake quake, earthquake, the earthquake pictures his power, his authority, and his judgment. But also in verse 4, he calls heaven and earth to bear witness to his faithfulness. He is Israel's redeemer, king, and judge. And so he's getting the stage set. And then verse 7, Hear my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Do you understand this is God speaking? I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds. 
For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine in all of its fullness. When I, will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How many times have you heard people quote that or you've quoted it? I've co- it's fine. It's fine to quote it and say, yeah, my God has all my supply and all my need. But in context, that statement is a rebuke to their empty sacrifices of people who have no heart for God but are continuing in their religious experience. He says, I don't need your food. I don't need blood or meat from you. I gave you a means to come to me in the mercy that I've shown you and a way to honor me through my law even though they couldn't keep it fully, they could honor him as they did it and be thankful for the mercy that he showed. Because there's people that got it in the Old Testament. And there's people that understood. Repeated rituals, even Old Testament law of Levitical law, done without sincere hearts, is really just superstition and folly. Are you with me? When you do repeated rituals just because you think they're going to get you a blessing from God, but your heart is not with them, that's folly. He says, give me thanks. Pay your vows. Do what you said you'd do. Call upon me in your trouble. Now, when that's done from a simple, humble heart, God will honor you and help you, but it is not do this list and expect all the blessings because you did religious activity. How many people get mad at God because they go, I did the list and I'm not getting what I want. If that's your heart and that's your mind, you're an error. You're missing the point. It's not, you don't give God a list of here's my report card of what I did. Teacher said I got straight A's. You have to give me 50 bucks for every A. This is not a relationship with God based on who he is in reality. And some people do go to church, put money in the kitty, yet live in rebellion to God's word in their daily life, but they expect his blessing. And, uh, and, and it's a problem when the church embraces that and says, well, we're getting their money, and they're, they're helping do this and that. That's a problem. True servant leaders, true pastor's heart, is to want people to have a deep and real relationship with God. Just as a parent, and anyone here could relate as a parent, do you just want your kids, a parent who just wants their kids to do what they want? I just want that kid to do what I want. And that becomes your only relationship with your kid. Even when they do what you want, you're not happy, and they are not happy. They are wounded because they're not being loved for who they are. And they're not having a relationship with you. You know, you want a relationship that is right and true. Now, it is revealed with God and through obedience, it's true. And it's a little tricky sometimes there. But that's where you pursue the Lord and, and, and that's where you, you and I have to talk to him and walk with him and learn to get to know him. He clarifies, though, in verse 16 through 21. Did I get that far? 
where, where did I stop? <clears throat> 16, okay. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction? Cast my words behind you. When, and now look how they do it. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been partaker with adulterers. You give your mouths to evil and your tongues frame deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, that would be the problem, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Strong words. To the wicked, what right do you have to declare my statutes, take my covenant in your mouth, because you hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you? They were living just like the people around them, but it was worse because they had his word and because they were treating their own brethren, each other, with contempt. It speaks volumes to us. And it's, we won't be done from the Old Testament because Jesus will speak to us in a few minutes. God, you're, you're living in this evil way. You're just like these people around you, and I hate all of you. God was saying, you are to be a witness for me, and, and I have given you so much more. They were sinning against God by sinning against their brothers. And... All the things he mentioned were in relationship to each other. Israel's laws, in great measure, when they're obeyed, they would make them shine as a light because of how they treated each other and the stranger that came among them. Did you know that? You know, when people saw them offering sacrifices on the altar, they may or may not have been moved by that. A lot of people offered sacrifices to idols. But when they saw the way Israel would treat each other according to God's law, they would see a people that were in unity and experiencing love and kindness to each other and were inviting other people to join them in that same love. That's what they were supposed to be. So, excuse me, God's silence is often interpreted as he doesn't care or he's impotent. God's silence where he doesn't move immediately on situations and waits is often interpreted in human minds that he either doesn't really care about that or he's impotent, he has no power to do anything about it. Wrong, 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 wrong. God is patient, and that's why he waits. He's long-suffering. He is not impotent, and he is not giving approval to evil. You thought I was like you, he says. Bringing God's holiness down to their human thought level, that's a big mistake, isn't it? You know this. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, on a thousand hills. hills. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heaven is higher, high above the earth, 
so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That distinction is not just flowery and he just has more for us and better. It is totally true. But it means that we don't think properly naturally. Do you get that? We don't think properly naturally. But listen, humility is not self-hatred. Humility is not hating yourself. God does not want you to hate yourself in the sense that we're talking. Doesn't he have to hate his own life also? Doesn't that script? Yeah, that, you've, that you care all about God more than anything else. Yes, that's true. But being down and hateful to yourself isn't humility. Humility, humility is not self-hate. It's to value his thoughts over your own. What does God say about that person? What does God say about that situation? What does God say about you? Now, he tells us hard things about ourselves. Is that right? But he never tells us with a rejection that I don't want you. He's always beckoning us to him that he loves us. And the value he places on you is the life of his son, Jesus Christ. So we understand that in a New Testament value system and it was even there in the old testament so as a righteous judge he gives the strongest warning to those who play games with his law and his righteousness the same god the same truth is jesus christ of the new testament uh there is the fact that the full revelation comes through jesus which he gives us in the new testament jesus is very clear with real simplicity what do I mean? If, you're, if I'm confusing you for the last few minutes, don't worry. This is not confusing. Jesus says all the law hangs on, all the Old Testament law hangs on these two. Number one was what? With, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you do collect them all. Number one is love God. Love him. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said on these two laws, hangs all the Old Testament law. And a lot of you already knew that, if not everybody here. And now you do. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> in John thirteen thirty five, Jesus said, he gave an indication, the strongest possible indication of how people in the world would identify you and me as to whether we are disciples. That they get to judge They do. They get to look at us and go, now, they're not free to just judge everything and not have to face God, but they are able to judge our Christianity. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's a pretty outstanding thing, and we we did this on Monday night briefly. And I mentioned um, the patience of God and, and how Faith and patience go together. And do you have stories in the Bible that help you with that? And people mentioned some. And I I don't know if I mentioned it first or not, but uh, the reading and reading through the Bible right now, we just finished the life of Joseph. We're just finishing the life of Joseph. Genesis 37 to about 49 or 50 to the end. And um, it's so off, once again, reading the story of Joseph, I was struck so profoundly 
And by the way, I interrupted myself. I was encouraging people to get to know that story and be able to shorthand explain that story to somebody. It's just an assignment for those of you that would. He'll show you things he didn't show Rick. He'll show you things that I don't mention, but um, you can listen to Bible studies on it. The whole, But when you get the whole story in one sitting, there's so much beauty and power and relief and help and challenge in this story. And it's just one example, but it's such a great one. I don't want to miss it, so I'm telling all of you, I'm encouraging all of you, get to know. Don't just read it once. Get to know the story of Joseph. First of all, he's a picture of Christ. But, but in this, I'm not going to go through the whole story. I was struck how his brothers, 10 of the... Uh, he had 11 brothers, but one of them is Benjamin, so there's 10 of them that hate him. But Reuben doesn't want to see him get killed, so when they take him and say, let's kill him, he says, no, put him in a pit. And then he has to go away and comes back, and Joseph's already been sold. Are you with me? You'll have to read it if you don't know. So all of them wanted to get rid of him, and nine of 10 of these guys were willing to kill him. They were willing to kill their brother. Maybe their hero was Cain. <laughs> but, um, and, 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 but by the time, and then Judah, when they get there and Joseph messes with them to find out if they've repented, if they love their dad, if he's alive, if there's all of that, Judah's the one that speaks up. Now, I need to tell you something about Judah. J- Joseph's story starts with Joseph and his coat in chapter 37, but in 38, there's a side issue, there's a sidebar, and it's Judah going to a prostitute, not really, it's Tamar, Judah and his sons, and the, and the kinsman redeemer story, and Judah is a bad man. Judah is a bad man. Can you say that, Judah? <laughs> no, you don't have to. Judah is a bad man, but Tamar shows him his evil, and he says, you're more righteous than I. Why is that story there? First of all, the exact lineage through Judah that happens because a bad man is humbled and broken by a woman who's seeking the right thing, even though she does it in a weird way. God is moving because humans are all messed up, and God's going to do what he's going to do no matter what. Judah, who's a, what kind of man is he? He's a bad man. He's not a good guy. He is not a good guy. But when they get to Joseph, and they, are th- and they finally bring Benjamin with them, they convince Joseph, Jacob, to let Benjamin come, and they have been alienated from each other, alienated from their father for 20 years. They wanted to get rid of Joseph and be happy without him and have their own relationship with their dad. You know what they did? They distanced their dad from them. They hurt him deeply. And he, he didn't know they did what they did, but he didn't trust them. And it was with good reason. And he wasn't drawn closer to them, and he grieved and grieved and grieved for all of those 20 years, and their hearts broke because their hatred for their brother broke their father's heart. And when... Joseph is going to keep Benjamin 
it tells them he's the one that stole my cup. He's going to stay here and be my slave. They all, no, 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 no. And this is the other favored son, their half-brother. And they go, no. And Judah stands up and says, he had said it to his dad, and now he says it to Joseph, knowing, not knowing that he's Joseph. He says, kill me, make me a slave. Let me bear the weight of this sin. Let me bear the weight of this sin because we cannot see our father's heart broken again. Something happened in Judah and his brothers. When they saw that their treatment of their brother what it did to their father's heart. Are you following this? (laughs) It cannot be clearer. It cannot be clearer. How we treat each other is what the father sees and what makes him joyful or what grieves him. And no Christian can live outside of this. You can, I can, others can avoid this. But we're breaking the Father's heart. We're not crushing God. I mean, we get you get the difference between a, jo- a Jacob, a human, and God. But it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So the priority here, the priority here is not our religious activity putting your money in the kitty. Do support the ministry. Do, do your part. But it isn't, it, it, you know, doing your religious activity, and I'm not accusing anyone here. By the way, this body of people that I'm with right now, you are amazing at this stuff. You are not being rebuked by me. You are being thanked by me. Because you give me the freedom not only to say this, but because I can go anywhere and say, I got the, I got the greatest church family in the world where I go to church. Because you guys show so much love to one another. Please keep it up. Please don't let the enemy stop it. And if there's areas in your life, in your family, in your where you need help from God, be sure that you seek that help to be to let him set you free. Let's go forward, not backward. The world's gonna get harder and darker, apparently. That's what the Bible says. Seems like it's going that way. Don't let it happen to you. Because our job is, is our blessing us. The fruit of a real relationship with God is to love one another. It's the true mark of discipleship at its core. And in 1 John 3.14, the gospel writer, who's also the writer of the letters of John, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And learn the lesson of Judah. Learn the lesson of Judah. And, and let God bless you in ways that you can't even understand and I can't understand. Let's stand together. Lord, if only we could see your heart 
And yet we can. Through the story of Joseph, the way you pictured yourself, Lord Jesus, with him, to draw out the hearts of his brothers so that they could truly be sorry for their sin and also have a change of heart towards their father and their brother. Lord, we want our hearts to be molded by you. We want the new heart that you have for us. And we've all been in situations where someone's hurt us and embittered us and failed us, and we have done the same. Lord, you're big enough to heal these things. And we don't know if you'll heal it in relationship to every person in our life that's we've been at odds with, every brother or sister. But we know you have the ability to heal it in our hearts. God, would you make us redemptive? Would you make us a part of the redeeming, the costly redeeming of a soul purchased by the blood of Jesus and lived out by his church, us, lived out before mankind. Help us not make excuse. Help us not run away, but draw near and do a work that only you can do. And we love you this morning, Lord. A rainbow has shined through our window and we know that you love us. And now, Lord, we just want to love you back in Jesus' name.